You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Has anyone else noticed the division in our country over the last two years? Just me? No, that, that's, not a, that's not my opening joke, but it, it almost is, right? Because we don't need an expert to tell us that our nation is more polarized than it's been since the Civil War. Why are we so incredibly divided? And I think we can blame some of it on 2020 pandemic, everyone being locked in their houses and going crazy a little bit. But also there are other issues that divide us in this season, things like racial injustice and abortion and and topics that really have been in the news for decades and we're not it seems like we're not able to find common ground or even talk to one another about these kinds of things. So is there a different factor? Is there another factor that's at play in our modern age and the, the, the division that we're experiencing? I mean you've probably felt it. I know I have. Uh, I know I have experienced even division within our church at times. I've even heard stories of families being divided to the point where parents are kicking their kids out of their household because of their decision on masks or vaccines and those kinds of things. And I think there is. There's a factor that we really need to talk about, and that's social media. Social media contributes to what I would call the disintegration of truth that we're seeing that really flares these these two polar sides against one another. I came across an article in Relevant Magazine uh, that cited research from MIT that 19 of the top 20 Christian Facebook pages in 2019 were run by overseas troll farms. Now, if you don't know what a troll farm is, that's totally okay. That might be a new term for you. Uh, but in the digital age, online, uh, there's a term for someone who intentionally posts something divisive or offensive. And that term is, they're called a troll. Where's my Gen Z people at, right? You know. They're called a troll. And if, you know, it, they might comment on a YouTube page or they might tweet something really offensive, you know. And the intention behind that is so that that person will get a reaction. And if you are getting angry, if a troll is making you angry, one of your friends might say to you, don't worry, they're just trolling you, right? So that's what the terminology is. But it's not just random people in their houses who are doing this now. It's actually been almost weaponized, especially preceding the last two elections. There's like, it's, I know it sounds a little conspiracy theory yes. But it's true. In Russia, in Kosovo, in Macedonia, there are groups of people who all they do is sit around behind a computer screen and they create sometimes absolutely false, but sometimes just misleading, oftentimes very divisive posts, and they send them out into the internet to do damage and wreak havoc. And they have what's called bots. Have you ever had to fill out you know, a new profile if you bought an item on a website, and it asks you the question, are you a robot? It's checking to see if you're a human or if you're just a program, right? A software uh, that is created to repeat the same process. And so instead of these people sitting behind a computer screen and retweeting something thousands of times, can you imagine how long that would take if you had to do that? 
They, they actually don't just create and fabricate content and release it into the internet and social media. They also create bots that spreads it even further. So that's, that explains, like you don't have to have clicked like or follow on one of these 19 of the top 20 Christian Facebook pages, which by the way, almost all of them are taken down now. Um, so that's, you know, Facebook catches that stuff, it, it's brought to their attention, that sort of thing. And yet, I think this is, you know, talk about wolves in sheep's clothing. That Christians in America are specifically being targeted as with, with false information. Jeff Allen, who is a former senior level data scientist at Facebook, said this. Our platform, speaking about Facebook, has given the largest voice in the Christian American community to a handful of bad actors who, based on their media production practices, have never been to church. It's just... Social media, in, in one sense, is a blessing, and it is a tool that is used for so much great creativity and connection, but it is also just as powerfully being used as a weapon to divide our country, and, and in some cases, even our church. Uh, Tyler Huckabee, who's the author of that Relevant Magazine article, says this. He, he really wraps up his conclusion with Christian pastors have congregations in their pews at best one morning a week. Facebook is in their pocket all day long, shaping their theology for its own ends. The reason we're talking about this is I believe this is maybe the missing piece of that conversation of why are we so divided today, is social media is a spiritual formation machine. It shapes us. The things that you scroll across on your feed, the articles you share, the comments, and the trolls that you're fighting and doing battle with online, and yet, the reason why I bring this up is not because we need to, I don't want to mobilize us against overseas you know, trolls or hackers or anything like that, but just to bring up the point, why are Christians the ones falling for this? Christians know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Christians have the authority of Scripture to shape our worldview. We should be the most resistant to misinformation. And yet, why are we the ones that all of this information and these polarizing arguments really taking root? At times, we, if we're honest, are the most susceptible to the deception, speaking of wolves and sheep's clothing. The reason why I bring this up is we live in what we, what we can see and we can feel as a divided nation. We live in a, a cultural moment that is a moment of division. And today what we're talking about in our Prophets and Kings series is the division of the kingdom of Israel. And as we're going to see, as these events transpire and take place, the events that led up to really a fractured kingdom of God's chosen people, you're going to notice it's not all that different from the cultural moment that we are in in our day and our age. So to recap from last week, we talked about King Solomon. He ushered in the golden age of the kingdom of Israel. There was incredible wealth and power and influence. And where we left it last week is how did Solomon do? He was incredibly good as a king. He was incredibly effective as a builder and as a wise man. But how did he do as a man of God? Not so great. His heart went after his many foreign wives, and he used wealth that God had blessed him with to build shrines and altars to pagan deities. And so we left things last week with God sending the prophet Ahijah to actually pronounce to Jeroboam through a prophecy that the kingdom would be ripped away 
from Solomon. Not during his lifetime to honor God's covenant with David, but during his son's lifetime, 10 of the tribes would go and and the nation would be fractured. So God raised up adversaries during Solomon's life, and Jeroboam was one of those adversaries. He actually worked underneath Solomon in one of his divisions, overseeing the forced labor or the slavery that was happening in all of the building projects in the land. And then once Solomon found out that Ahijah the prophet had pronounced this this, this blessing upon Jeroboam, he tried to kill him. So Jeroboam flees from the land and he goes to Egypt where he finds favor with the Pharaoh of Egypt and he hides out until Solomon dies. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna pick up in 1 Kings chapter 12. If you have a Bible, you can open to 1 Kings chapter 12. Believe it or not, we're only covering one chapter today. No 12 chapters, just one. It's a long chapter, but we're only covering one chapter. We'll be in 1 Kings 12 the entire time Uh, today. We're going to pick up the story where Solomon has died. So Solomon has died, and his son Rehoboam goes north to Shechem, which is in, in the northern side of things, to be crowned as the new king of Israel by all the tribes. So there's representatives of all the tribes, and, and Jeroboam, who was the one who was prophesied to take half the kingdom, uh, has actually come back, because Solomon is dead. He's come back, and he is there present with all the tribes. First Kings chapter 12, verse 3. And they sent and called him, and Jeroboam, and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, your father made our yoke heavy, Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. So the the tribes have a request. They're asking Rehoboam to undo the sins of his father, that Solomon, in his quest to build the perfect kingdom, he really started to put a heavy burden of slavery on not just the surrounding nations, but here we see even on his own people. He was a taskmaster, and so the people request, they say, will you lighten that? It's been difficult difficult to live under the pressure of your father, Solomon. And what Rehoboam does is in some ways taking after his father, he doesn't give a rushed answer. He says, give me three days, I'm going to really think about your request, and I'll get back to you. So he takes three days, and he listens to two different groups of advisors during during those three days. The first group of of advisors is his father's old advisors. You remember Solomon, the wisest man on planet Earth? So his advisors, the people giving him advice, fairly wise, and they also sat under Solomon's wisdom their entire lives. And so they gained wisdom. So the first group is an older group And this is the the wisdom that they give to Rehoboam in verse 7. And they said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. Does that sound like good, good advice? Right. If you serve the people, the people will serve you. That's what's called in, in our modern day, in, you know, in leadership circles, servant leadership, which I don't think we kind of take that for granted because it's almost like a leadership breakthrough in our modern age. In the ancient world, there's almost no such thing as servant leadership. That's why Jesus was so revolutionary when he washed the disciples' feet because if you had a position of authority, you should be able to use that authority to do whatever you want, right? That's kind of the, 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 in that day and age. And so this is incredible wisdom 
from these, this older group of gentlemen. They give that wisdom to Solomon. Serve the people and they will serve you. And then we get the second group of people, which is Rehoboam's buddies in verse 10. And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, and it says young men, Rehoboam was 41 years old at this point in time, so they're probably 40s, right? This isn't like, and he went and asked a bunch of children what they think, right? And the young man who had grown up with said this, thus you shall speak to this people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, right? A little complaining, right? Your father made our yoke heavy, but lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. And those are the two, those are the two options. And uh, obviously, the young man's advice is arrogant. It's crude, actually. It's, it's you know, Rehoboam's been king for what? Less than three days. And he's like, show them how awesome and tough you are. You're better than your father. And it's foolish advice, quite frankly. And so Rehoboam, he deliberates over these three days. And guess which one he picks? He takes the advice of the young men. And he goes back to the people who were requesting a lighter yoke. And he says, my father disciplined you with whips. I will discipline you with scorpions. And this harsh communication... I'm sure what Rehoboam was thinking is these people, if they're already kind of stirring and getting out of line, I need, to, I need to be harsh, I need to be brutal, I need to whip them into shape. It totally backfires. This is the moment. I mean, how he's been king for three days. All of a sudden, the 10 tribes, just as was prophesied by the prophet Ahijah, leave with Jeroboam. They go north, and all of a sudden, Rehoboam watches as the kingdom is dividing in two and his authority and his power is slipping through his fingers. Now, the, the rest of this section, what he does is he sends one of his other taskmasters, right? That was the role that Jeroboam played. One of his other ones to go, go, go north and just check on the situation and get some taxes from the people and you know, see, see if we're really, things are really as bad as we thought. They kill him immediately when he sends him north. And Rehoboam's like, I gotta get back to Jerusalem. I gotta get back to the palace, right? My life is in danger. And so he summons 180,000 troops to march to the northern kingdom. And at the end of this section, they're on the brink of civil war because of bad advice that he received from some buddies, because of a blog that someone wrote on Facebook, because of retweeting something that he didn't quite look into to see if it was true or good or not. And Shemaiah the prophet is there and he stops Rehoboam from taking things too far and you know, he sends all the troops home. And there isn't civil war at this point, but there would be in the future. And at this point, the nation is completely fractured. So what can we learn from this? I would ask you to consider this question. Who do you listen to? Who do you listen to? I mean, this is not a rash or a rushed decision by Rehoboam. He did not accidentally miscommunicate when he called the assembly. He had three days, and he listened to two different groups of people. He had the opportunity to choose wisdom, but he chose foolishness. And this foolishness cost him the kingdom. It cost him the kingdom. You can only listen to foolish voices for so long until you do something foolish. 
It's just a matter of fact. You can, only, you can only listen to those voices for so long before you actually follow them. And for so many of us, I would just challenge us, who do you listen to? Are you, who, who has the loudest platform in your life? Is it whoever's behind the screen on the other side of social media? Is it your friends who you grew up with? Is it your coworkers? Is it your neighbors? Is it scripture? Is it godly people? Is it wisdom? And how much time are we spending on all of these other platforms versus time spent in God's word? Here's our practice. Here's who we should listen to. Listen to God's spirit, God's word, and godly people. God's spirit, God's word, and godly people. We need to run everything that that we're making decisions uh, on in our lives and run it past does this agree or disagree with, with God's clear directive in Scripture? And if, if I believe something that clearly disagrees with Scripture, I have to assume I'm wrong. How many times? Every single time. If there's something that God's word, and there's, there's a lot of things in God's word that it's not like black and white, super clear, you know, takes, but if there's things in God's word that is black and white, clear, and I disagree with it, I have to humble myself before scripture and listen to what God's word has made clear. Listening to God's spirit, that's taking time in prayer and reflection and silence and solitude. And and instead of just listening to your buddies or, or these people over here, listening to the spirit. Praying through decisions, praying for wisdom, asking for wisdom, asking for clarity, and then listen to godly people. I would just challenge you to say, okay, who are the people? And it's good to listen to people and process things with people and friends, but I would just challenge you, are their lives lives that look like they're actually following Jesus or not? Even if what they say seems like it's really smart or seems like it's really wise, when you even look at the tone in which the young men gave Rehoboam their advice, it's crude, it's vulgar, it's arrogant. He's been king for three days. They're like, you're so much better of a king than your father. We can see how it would appeal to Rehoboam. I am a better king than my father. Took that guy long enough to die. I had to wait till I was 41 before I became king, right? You can see how it would appeal to his flesh, how it would appeal to his sinful nature, but just weigh people's people's lives, not just the advice that they give you. Are they godly people? This is why it's so important for us to have community in the church, not just to attend a church worship gathering so that we can process through things, so that we can have people to be accountable to, people who can call us out when we're off kilter in our lives. And so I would just say this to you. Would you prioritize spending time in scripture over spending time on social media? And you could do a calculation if you want. You can check your screen time on your phone and say, how many minutes am I scrolling versus how many verses am I reading? How how long am I in scripture? But we need to put more limits on our social media than we realize. And we need to put more intentionality and effort into reading scripture and spending time in spiritual practices than we probably do. Who do you listen to? The next lesson that this teaches us is it really teaches us what a good king is versus a bad king is. And we know that Rehoboam was a bad king. And I believe that one of the reasons that he listened to this advice from his young friends is because it appealed to something within Rehoboam that was already there. It appealed to his thirst for power and specifically this kind of brutal, harsh 
nature. If I've been given power, I should be able to exploit it and use it however I want. That is the opposite of a good king. And we, we know that because we have the perfect example of a good king in King Jesus. In King Jesus. I mean, think about just those, those words. They, they're requesting their yoke to be lighter. And he says, I will make your yoke heavier. It is not that way with Jesus. Our practice, if we want to be good leaders in our lives, is to lead by serving, to lead by serving.
to lead by serving.